Welcome to Ravens at the Crossroads. I'm Mistress Prime. I'm Tyler Matthews. And today we have Evo Dominguez with us. Welcome, Evo. Great to be here. Thank you. Now, tell us a little bit about your uh, life growing up. <laughs> you had an interesting birth, it looked like. Oh, yes. Uh, so I was born in the middle of the Cuban Revolution. Uh, actually in the province where the re revolution started. Uh, Castro uh, actually was personally known to my parents and my aunt uh, actually dated his brother for a while. But be that as it may, uh, my mom was very pregnant. Uh, a machine gun fight had broken out. Uh, people were told to hit the deck and she hit the deck and immediately broke water, started hemorrhaging and was probably gonna die and uh, take me with her. Uh, my family's always been very religious, spiritual experiencers of various things. And my Aunt Lydia, who is either blessed or a bit touched, depending upon how you want to look at it, uh, who had visions of, of, of Christ and Mary and got stigmata and the whole deal, grabbed a kerosene lamp, ran out into the street, and said, my sister's going to die in childbirth if, if you don't get her to the hospital, you have to stop fighting. Now, they paused, they stopped. They, my uh, uncles and father and, and family were able to get mom to the hospital and she had an emergency C-section and it was very dramatic with uh, you know hand crank generators because the power was out. And, my granddad bribing people to donate blood so they would uh, have blood for her. It was, it was quite a thing. Now you can, you could say that uh, it was a question of, you know, in Latin culture, uh, childbirth is a big deal. And maybe the soldiers stopped because of that. Maybe they stopped because of uh, the energy radiating off of my aunt who believed that she had, you know, the power of God behind her. So people stopped. But anyway, it was it was a pretty dramatic uh, birth uh, entry to the world, and I'd I, say so. yeah, I mean, it certainly shows up if you look at my birth chart. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the 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 uh, the energy was intense uh, for for that particular moment in time. Okay. Uh, what what exactly what uh, elements were highlighted, if you don't mind me asking? If, if, if you are uh, fluent in astrology at all, there was a, a, a grand cross which uh, made life uh, complicated. It was also mm -hmm. the uh, moon was in uh, the last 29th, last possible moment of Scorpio. So we had a uh, last moment of Scorpio moon with a grand cross, including planets like uh, Jupiter and Mars and Uranus and it was just a fever pitch moment. Uh, and if you want to, and it was also the day of Mars, if you want to do the day and the hours and all that. So it turned into this moment where something dramatic was going to happen. I, I would definitely consider just a birth in general being kind of dramatic, but on yep. top of being in the middle of the Cuban revolution. Yeah. 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 That's an awesome origin story. Yeah. Well, it, it goes back in a weird way as well, because you see, my, both of my grandfathers had left Spain during the Spanish Civil War. 
Uh, and I guess for, for modern pagans, uh, the, the place in mind for that is if, if you've seen Pan's Labyrinth, you kind of see kind of like out of the edges uh, uh, a bit about the Spanish Civil War and the, and the atrocities therein. But my granddad's left Spain, moved to Cuba to get away from the Spanish uh, Civil War, uh, met two lovely women who they married and had kids with. And here we go. A generation mm -hmm. later, uh, uprooted we go again. Now, if you like things in, in that kind of complicated, synchronistic way, so uh, Francisco Franco, who was the architect of the Spanish Civil War, was from Galicia, a province in northwestern Spain, mm -hmm. which is where my grandfathers were from and the wow. the province in in the province in cuba where uh, the revolution started was settled primarily by people from galicia as a matter of fact uh castro is a distant relative of francisco franco oh i didn't oh, know and that. also char and also charlie sheen <laughs> <laughs> That's a bit random. <clears throat> well, not entirely. It, it is, but it is. It is, but but there's this pattern of uh, upheaval and mm. of renewal. So that, uh, as far as we can tell, uh, our people had stayed put for tens of thousands of years, and then suddenly we move from one country to another country and another country. When I was a kid, in, living in Florida, uh, by the way. I was living in Florida, I'm 61, uh, living in Florida during the Cuban Missile Crisis was not fun. Oh. Uh, oh. <laughs> and there was also, there was also a moment in time uh, when, like when, when Kennedy died, uh, there was weeping and wailing in the household and pounding of chests and packing up of, uh, of, of jewelry and uh, basically a, a, a go bag to get out because they had no, under, no way to know whether or not America wouldn't descend into some sort of chaos at that point. So that at that moment, we were like, well, I guess we're going to Canada. Uh, we had a moment similar to that a couple of years ago. Well, almost four years ago now. Oh. Uh, after a certain uh, election, a certain Cora and I actually. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so, so I, I uh, am, I'm going to say that that uh, I've had uh, an eventful life, uh, but, it, but having come from that background, uh, I'm kind of like remarkably well-suited to our current era. I think it's kind of like getting a vaccine because I had so many crazy things as a child. My part of the family, uh, my nuclear family, mom, dad, my sister, were the first of us to arrive here from Cuba. So for a time, uh, as, as our relatives managed to leave Cuba, their first landing pad was us. So mm -hmm. as a child, uh, it was normal for me to have all sorts of random sort of known to me relatives descend upon us until they could find a place of their own. And that also created uh, a, a comfort level with a certain amount of uh, chaos and unusual people about the house. So decades later, uh, when our house regularly became the crash zone for people sleeping over after a ritual or workshop, it's like, oh, this feels normal. That to have the sense. constant flow through people. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I think the only other thing I'm going to throw in, in there is that, uh, of, of, of course, uh, though there are denials and times when I was uh, punished as a child for it, 
I was always pointing out to uh, mom, dad, uh, for a while, both grandmoms lived with us, that, you know, that's ancestor worship. That's doing magic. I was raised Catholic, but Cuban Catholic, Cuban Catholic, Cuban Catholic is not quite uh, free of magical stuff. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I noticed that um, of all the areas where Catholicism was sort of brought to an area that already had sort of a indigenous practice or whatnot, the Catholicism gets a little more superstitious and magical um, practices infused into it. Um, Since they were, since they were always just below the surface anyway. Right. Right. Cause my mom was from uh, the Philippines and Catholic. Yep. And uh, there was so much superstition. (laughs) It was, uh, I never understood it entirely um, how they didn't recognize that fact, but. And then my father well, was and, and how, Polish and, could, and Catholic, so. Okay. And how it's offensive when you point it out. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so upsetting. Yeah, I know. I'm kind of not accepted in the family for that fact. But, yeah, whatever. So, it's the 70s. And you've started. Okay. I'm going to. Keep going. So it's the seventies, and so, you all right. Start... So, 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 so we're moving through. We're doing the time travel. Yeah, okay. let's do a little bit of a time travel thing. And so you started. You started your path. How did you? You met somebody when you were in fencing class. Yeah, let me. I'll, I'll back it up a little bit. So, um, I always had a significant number of psychic experiences meaningful dreams, odd occurrences as a child. So I already had a sense of there being more to the world than the physical reality or to the limited ideas that uh, came through my religious upbringing. So I already had that going. And because uh, I had access to a lot of books and material. So eventually when we left uh, Florida, which is, you know, and I lived in Tampa, Florida, which was basically a, a, an enclave of Cuba for where I lived. So we moved to Delaware. My dad got offered a job at the University of Delaware. And uh, where, where tenure is offered, you, you go. <laughs> right. So, but the deal was, as a child, and I was uh, always an avid reader and read way above my reading level, I had from, I don't know, sixth or seventh grade, sixth grade on, seventh grade on, a, a library card to check out books or to look at materials at the university libraries and to use uh, uh, all the resources available to uh, get interlibrary loan, et cetera. So I was reading all sorts of anything that I could find. Now, most of it was primarily ceremonial magic in focus because that was easier to find at that time. But I had read as much as I could. Uh, actually, the first uh, uh, book of magic that uh, stuck with me was The Secret Lore of Magic by Idris Shah, it, which is really old uh, uh, grimoire kind of stuff. FYI, Idris Shah, oddly enough, uh, uh, knew Gerald Gardner, uh, though oh. I didn't know that at the time. In any case, I read all these books. But I also was, uh, even though I was the kid that always had a book uh, with them and 
was nerdy geeky, both things. The nerd and geek are not one and the same. Uh, right. I spent a lot of times walking in the woods. Uh, I spent a lot of time uh, out in nature. So I had a profound connection to stuff which didn't quite fill, fall into the mold of, st of the uh, stuff that you, I was reading. But I knew witches existed and I knew that there were traditions. And so my family uh, was very adamant about sound mind, sound body, blah, blah, blah. So they wanted me to take up a sport. And there was not anything that I wanted to do uh, in high school that was a sport. However, we lived walking distance to the University of Delaware campus where my dad taught. And I got permission to start going to the fencing club at the University of Delaware to count as my athletic activity. <laughs> and, and well, you know, and, and uh, well, it worked because do you suppose I had read a couple of sword and sorcery and fantasy novels sure. by then? Yeah. Okay. Sure. So, so it totally made sense to my parents. Eva wants to, uh, to do sword fighting. It's fine. <laughs> now, while I'm at this fencing club, and I'm actually getting pretty good at it. I was actually enjoying it. Um, uh, we were done. I uh, go, to the, go to the changing room to change out of stuff so that I could get back to school because I had to get back to school because after school, I was also involved in the school paper and the literary, school literary magazine, blah, blah, blah. And this guy was changing really fast, and he's changing fast. Out from underneath his T-shirt pops a pentacle. And my eyes lock on it and I look at him and, oh, so are you Gardnerian? Are you Alexandrian? <laughs> are you part of the coven? Are you solitary? And his, he's, he's a grad student and his eyes are getting bigger and bigger and bigger because I'm a teenager. I'm a kid from high school who happens to be coming to the fencing club and to the fencing classes. And he, he says, can we talk about this somewhere else? And he's like, it, it suddenly dawns on me, oh, he's afraid somebody else is going to hear this conversation. So uh, <laughs> after we're in a, a more private, in a more private setting says, look, you're too young. Uh, nobody who's actually legitimate would uh, take you on to teach you. However, um, I can put you like in, which is legit. Yeah, no, I get it. But yeah. okay. Yeah. I get it. And, but he agreed to put me on to the mailing list back when we did uh, he asked me for a, a self-addressed stamped envelope, one of those magical objects in years of, of old where you uh, provided somebody with an envelope. <laughs> with a, uh, Right? Yes. It, it is. It, it is it, it's like a mystic scroll thing nowadays. So that you provided them with an envelope stamped and, and addressed to yourself by yourself. And they, in turn, put a newsletter in it. So I got on a mailing list for a couple of uh, groups that he was a part of. And he also eventually put me in touch with the uh, Keepers of the Ancient Min Mysteries, which was a group in the uh, Baltimore, Maryland area that actually had uh, pagan picnics uh, in, in, in the seventies before the pagan gathering scene even began. Oh, it was kind of cool. like the, pro the prototype version um, for, for the gathering scene, which officially I, most people say that Earth Spirit Community's Rites of Spring was the first big gathering. Hmm. And it is the first big gathering, but there were smaller things that occurred before then. Sure. But I met actual uh, teachers. Primarily, they were Alexandrians, uh, though a couple of Gardnerians as well. And I began to become aware of and network with them. And at that time, I was honestly 
I've never actually been shy, but it is useful to pretend to be shy sometimes. Yes. And I assume that it would be best for me to simply, I'm a young pup. These are people that have been at it for a while. I'm just going to sit in the corner and listen. And I did. And over time, I uh, picked up quite a bit. Also got a good idea of what other workshops, open rituals, uh, other mailing, other in-house newsletters I could get on. So I, my introduction to the official organized pagan community was uh, a little bit serendipitous, but uh, created some lasting connections for me. Um, even down to, uh, I mean, decades later, I, I was still in contact with uh, everybody that I met initially at that point, which was a good thing. Wow. Though I will say that living, living just far enough away, living in Delaware, as opposed to being in Maryland or Virginia or Pennsylvania, or et cetera, I mean, we were far enough away from New England that we weren't part of that wave of things. And we were far enough away in Delaware that we got to observe and learn and pick up a lot of things, but we weren't caught up in the... Um, Politics? Well... Yeah, part of it is politics, but also part of it is growing pains. Mm. I mean, how many times, have, because, you know, and because and, a lot of times people will uh, revert to pointing at, at uh, oh, they had terrible witch wars. They did. Oh, they had terrible politics. They did. But there was also a lot of really good stuff. And a lot of it is simply the growing pains of how do you go from uh, being the goddess's hidden children that nobody knew about to having public events. I think people underestimate just how stressful that was, not just from a logistics perspective, but also a what is safe for me perspective. I, so jumping ahead a little bit, and then, I'll, then we'll come back. I mean, it, eventually, uh, I, I decided uh, that it was for logistic reasons and other reasons too far uh, for me to be driving or, 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 or taking a bus or train or whatever to get all my training. It had to be more local. There's only so many hours that you can expend in traveling. Anybody who's motivated can do it for a while, but there is a point where you begin to kind of hit the wall or begin to build up a resentment for the amount of time that you're commuting just to be in community. Yes. Uh, it, or it, just, I mean, it's, it's a real, real thing. Yeah, or or it also you know comes a financial burden mm -hmm. that, that puts I on do. a great strain. I can understand yeah, especially since both. I, yeah. Yeah, I have a I have a girlfriend who lives down here in Southern California, and once a month would fly up to the Bay Area for classes and uh, time spent with her magical community up there. That's extensive. Not that there isn't community it, it, down here. It's it just is. the one that the one that no, she was really connected to was uh were people that she knew up, up north, so um but that that's just difficult after a while. And right? and it was easier it was easier to create my own uh what I needed. Uh honestly uh, my my situation has always been, if I don't have what I need, I go about trying to create the environment that brings it forth, which is actually a real magical perspective. 
uh, but it's magic of a different sort. Like, for example, I'm going to jump around a little bit. When I was in college at the University of Delaware, uh, the there was no uh, the queer the, the queer campus organization had collapsed because of the sponsor uh, having been fired by the university. It was a big big drama. I won't get all the details. So my reaction was, oh, that means I have to step up and uh, get involved with that group because otherwise I won't have uh, a place to go hang out and talk to people. Mm. Yeah. And uh, two years into, into that, uh, there was a, I got a weird phone call from, from uh, one of the local bars in uh, Newark, Delaware saying, Hey, we're behind on our rent, like five, six months behind on our rent. They're going to shut us down. If you guys can come up with the money to pay our back rent, we will turn our bar into a gay bar. And there weren't there weren't any in the area. Oh wow, that's I that's an around. interesting uh, <laughs> proposition. Like so, so what? So what did I do? I immediately started hitting every single person I knew that would have an interest, and we raised the money to pay their back rent. Oh, wow. and lo lo and behold, they became uh, a gay bar. And uh, uh, in that era, by the way. Uh, especially in smaller communities, we did not have the luxury of separation. So people of every flavor and gender and expression uh, attended said place. By the way, that's where I ended up uh, meeting Jim, who uh, he, he and I have been together since February of 1979. Wow. That's which is amazing. Also since the, which is also since the dawn of time. But... <laughs> In, in Not high quite school, that long, but. yeah, that's true. That's true. The the dinosaurs had died off by then. Well, I mean, it was but, before you were born, so therefore, yes, but <laughs> therefore, therefore, lot. it's mythical. Or, or in high school, after after the first semester freshman year in high school, I went. This is going to be grim. Mm. Which is, you know, a reasonable response. So I said, I need to do something about that. So by the end of the, my freshman year, I tracked down a teacher that looked like a, a promising target and a nice guy. And I said, hey, would you be willing to be the sponsor for the science fiction and fantasy book fan club? Oh, cool. Sure. So then, uh, so sophomore year on, I had 30, 40 people that were uh, my friends and family because we we hung out and did the school thing right mm -hmm. so the mm. point is i always had the idea of if something is missing then i need to go about creating it and i'm going to say part of it is uh, persistence and uh, uh negotiating skills but part of it's also magic plain and simple mm -hmm. in the 80s uh, uh jim and i actually uh, opened a uh bookstore in Wilmington that, that was a, let's call it an alternative bookstore. It was an occult bookstore, but it also had a big queer section and feminist section and environmental section, all the good things. Okay. And that's where we started having a uh, study group uh, for uh, pagan stuff. And after X number of people and had flowed through, we invited people for a private one. And that would eventually become the coven that founded the Assembly of the Sacred Wheel which is the group that I'm a part of. So once again, and we did have a serious discussion at the very beginning after we'd been practicing uh, as a study group for a year and then a private study group a year after that. We said, so do we want to take turns driving to, and I won't name names, but we had a list of people that we thought were decent teachers and we went, 
I don't know. They, not everybody does things on weekends. Can we afford both the time and money to do this? And in the end, we said, no, we will split up, go to as many open things or as we can go to, come back and study together and create something out of what we each had. And that's what we ended up doing. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. I mean, it, just to take a brief aside, your mentality of, hey, this doesn't exist, I need to go off and step and make it happen. That's yeah. not a common mentality for a lot of people. Like, I, I applaud you on that, just that aspect of your personality. Uh, going off and seeing well, and, and well, like being any... the change that you want to see, which is a very magical way to think of the things. It's, it's, also, uh, it's also the middle way. It's equally selfish and altruistic. Oh, yeah. Because if it, if it doesn't feed you, you're going to run out of energy or you're going to start resenting it. And if it doesn't feed other people, it's going to be poison in the long run. That's a very good way to think of it. And I, when you said that, I, there are several things that I've done in the past or worked with in the past that can fall into both of those one way or the other. Right. It's, it's a good way to kind of look at things. Thank you for that. All right. Where were we on this? Oh, we, oh, 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 oh. Uh, that first coven back in the eighties, uh, we, so we were also just in time for the satanic panic. <laughs> so wasn't that in the 80s? We actually, yes, it was. And we actually had a cop infiltrate our group. Oh, good grief. And uh, I mean, uh, we were, since we weren't beholden to any of the various traditions that we respected but were not a part of, we were holding a fair number of open, uh, full moons or holiday events at state parks at you know public libraries blah 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 so we were fairly easy to find and you know we also had flyers up in our in my bookstore so it's not like if you were a cop and you wanted to figure out where the occultists were here you go so this guy came to things for a while and he was a didn't quite fit in but he but he you know it's not like our community doesn't have its share of uh, diverse outlying people with that come off quirky. Right. And finally he, you know, approached us and said, Hey, can, can we have dinner together? I want to talk about something. At which point we said, Oh, I guess he's interested in applying to become part of the coven. No, no. Dinner time. He confesses that he was planted there by the uh, Newcastle County cops and uh, that he, he uh, had, had, discovered that uh, we were not dangerous <laughs> and and that we were nice people and sorry that uh, if, if uh, he had taken advantage of us in any way. Well, it was nice to even come clean real... about that. Yeah. I, mean... I, 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 I think that was just a stunning thing. And, and uh, the agreement we all came to, and he did use us a couple of times, is if we come across anything that's got some bizarre symbols, it looks kind of hinky, would one of you be willing to look it over and give me a heads up of, oh, this is just uh, somebody is uh, uh, play acting Satanism or uh, watch one too many late night movies? Or, mm. is, or is this something I should be concerned about? 
he did take up a couple of times as expert witnesses, but he did change the training uh, that uh, he offered uh, in-house to the other cops about what what, what looked like uh, something potentially uh, serial killer, stalker, crazy person, and what looked like just somebody's alter. That's cool. That is very cool. There have been a few... Sorry. Go ahead. I mean, mostly it's just uh, based on ignorance. They they predominantly didn't understand that segment of uh, the community. And so having him in there to learn more about everything gave the opportunity for the whole department to learn and become better educated on, you know, in general. Mm-hmm. And the fact that say he was one open thing. to it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't his path and, and he didn't become a convert, but he definitely decided that we were okay. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the tipping, in, in retrospect, one of the tipping points when I think he decided that we were not a dangerous cult is that he was hanging around uh, at a potluck we were having. And several of us, uh, and I'm not going to spill the beans, it's decades ago, but we were warning people about certain practitioners being uh, dangerous because they were handsy and touchy-feely and oh, predators. Mm-hmm. Yes, ma'am. So we were, we were, we were, we didn't use the term at that. We didn't call them predators, but we, I think slime bucket was the, was I think the term we used at that moment. <laughs> I think the, the point but, is still made. <laughs> but the point, but what caught his attention was that we were telling people within our, our casual potluck afterwards, Hey, if the following people try to get you to join their group, be aware of the following problems. Right. So the fact that we were mm-hmm. warning people uh, said, oh, huh, I don't know if they would be doing that if they were a cult. Well, yeah. okay, to be fair. To be fair. Cults. And the Not occults. in the academic sense. Yeah. 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 So, and, and, you know, some folks who are less uh, less educated on the nuances of different things within the occult sure. community uh, might lump things all together under one giant misunderstanding of Quite cult. right. Quite right. Yeah. Yeah, that term, that term means different things in different contexts for different people. True. Mm-hmm. And it could, Very true. And it, yeah. but, but, but the valuable thing was that, and is that we, we, we weren't trying to give the impression our community was perfect in any way, shape, or form. Right. And I think that that was a tipping point for him deciding to look at us with a less jaundiced eye. Mm. What an interesting term. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's awesome, though. And then now it's like, you know, now it's not a big deal to say, oh, I, I practice witchcraft. I mean, it right. is, well, but well, for some, well, about it. yeah. It, though you know, um, as 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 you're aware, and probably most of the folks that are likely to hear this, um, I've been out as queer, gay guy, whatever. The, the language has changed much over the years, but nonetheless, an outlier sexually forever, and that gave me an understanding of so i was 
out to myself as gay before I was a member of the public uh, pagan community. I'd already seen things in terms of how groups interact and how people deal with tensions and whatnot. So you know how a lot of people, when they first become involved in paganism or whatever, there's this kind of like limerent, golden, everything shiny. Uh, I've finally come home. These are my people. Right. Everything will be glorious. Mm -hmm. You know, I never had that with paganism because I had that when I was coming out as queer and discovered that the community was, damn it, a bunch of human beings. <laughs> okay. So... <laughs> So I'd already had that particular golden bubble popped so that I, when I, so as I became involved in public paganism, it's like, I'm not expecting this to be better than the rest of the world. I'm expecting it to be different than the rest of the world. That's fair. Mm -hmm. uh, it was, it was actually, I didn't burn out as easily because I, I didn't have unrealistic expectations about how people would behave. I, I've seen firsthand and experienced to some degree that kind of mentality that you're talking about where it's like, oh my gosh, everything's brand new and shiny and cool. And it, yeah, it takes a little bit of time for people to hopefully understand that people are still people. It, it's yeah, it's or, or another way of looking at it, it's like having new relationship energy, but for the for the concept of a community. Mm -hmm. Yes. Oh, that's a that's a good description. I like that. Because you know, it, it's really hard to to be critical when you're in that glowy phase. Very yeah. true. But and but. A, a, but a lot of the organizational skills that I eventually brought to bear in the pagan community came from many kinds of other organizations I'd been a part of, including being involved heavily in um, uh, queer activities of every flavor since since the very beginning of, of uh, my existence as a, an adult or a mm -hmm. teen even. So based on the, based on the, the things that I've seen and heard from you, it seems yeah. like this is just who you have always been and you've always presented yourself honestly to whoever was in the immediate area and didn't, didn't have to go about doing a lot of um, discovery about who you are as much as it seems like a, a larger portion of the population. So my coming out uh, experience was so brutal that after that, everything seemed like cake. Mm. Uh, my, so I was still living at home and it was the summer after senior year in high school, uh, be, you know, just before becoming ready to go into the university and discovered that uh, my parents had been reading my mail and I come home and they are reading a love letter that has been mailed to me from another man. Oh boy. And they went insane. Um, and there was 
basically uh, for the next month I was uh, held prisoner at home. There was all manner of uh, verbal stuff, physical stuff, psychological uh, drama. And to the point that it's like, I don't know if I'm going to make it. And indeed I had an out of body experience that uh, where I was floating over my body and looking down at, at my body and mom and dad. It's like, well, you know what? Uh, they can't really do anything to hurt me because here I am and I'm still me and uh, whatever happens, I'll be fine. No. So I ended up uh, escaping from home as in the, when I was left alone for more than 30 minutes, get going out the window with whatever I could grab, uh, lived on the street for a couple of weeks until I uh, ran into a friend from uh, high school whose parents allowed me to live with them for a while while I got a job and started looking for an apartment. The, uh, there, I, I, there's a long story of things that mom and dad did uh, actively and uh, against me for quite a while. Uh, my dad was a professor at the university. His signature would have meant free tuition. He would refuse to sign. So I ended up uh, working full time to go to school full time simultaneously. Uh, he offered money for me to leave the state and change my last name so I would not be a shame upon the family. Ouch. Uh, I, I got uh, snatched off the street in front of uh, a friend's house and taken to a deep programmer for a weekend. I mean, I could go on and on. So any, but short to say, um, in poor, my poor Jim, whose parents were very kind um, uh, in, in coping with things that they didn't understand by comparison, but you have to remember the era. I mean, this was this, you know, 70s and 80s, which is a very different time period in some right. regards. Though honestly, not really, because there's still people today whose political or religious upbringing makes them go crazy when their kids are not what they expect them to be. Right. So oh, yeah. is a, perhaps, perhaps the percentages are down, but it still exists. So all this, all this bad stuff had happened to me, and I came through it. So and I came to conclusion conclusions like oh okay so i'm never gonna leave so so i made a vow i will never uh, leave delaware since you asked me to leave <laughs> okay and i will not hide anything about myself good man you know because uh, the, the the other fallback plan what in was uh, dad said look as long as you get married and have kids and do this on the side i will look the other way oh my goodness Jeez. So, so, but you know, uh, so so anyway, so so I so I immediately uh, became uh, the 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 most out person in Delaware during that time period. And I was interviewed in papers. I was on the news regularly, and if, and uh, a number of years later, Jim and I were always in the news because we were heavily involved with the early days of fighting AIDS HIV. So. Uh, I mean, when I, I was when there, the human sexuality class at the University of Delaware used to have uh, one night uh, of the course that uh, I, in my head, I called Queers on Parade, where they basically had a bunch of out people that people could ask questions about. So the number of people that knew who I was as a, as a queer person of one kind or another was legion and beyond my knowing. So I found it easier just to live my life as if I were free. 
not not because nobody's actually free around here, but if you live as if you're free, then you might actually have a chance of feeling like you are. Right. Okay. Well, I, I get that. And I appreciate you taking that stand is, I mean, you're the generation that made way for my generation, the generation after to have at least a chance at having a little bit easier time. Not all of us did, but it was of course your, not. yeah, it was your sacrifice essentially that you went through that and didn't let it beat you down and destroy you to set the pavers down for us. And that's really awesome to hear that you know you kind of okay you want me to leave i'm gonna stay right here here i am and now that's that's awesome and i i thank you as a gay man myself you know i i do appreciate you and your husband taking that stance so i'm kind of like where do we head now <laughs> okay so and i know it's not pagany I don't care. But I'm really curious to hear your perspective about how life was during the HIV AIDS epidemic in the early days in your community and for you, like how you were seeing it oh, unfold. It, actually, in this, actually, in this particular case, it's, it's in my community, it's pretty damn pagan. Oh, so. Okay. Uh, so, uh, so Jim, as you, as you probably also know, um, astrology is one of my things. Yes. And, uh, my Jim is, uh, an RN though, uh, he's done much more administration and planning and stuff than hands on in the last, uh, decades or so. But this thing pops up and we go, huh, this is unusual. What's this new, new virus? And, I did the chart for what was going on and I went, holy crap, this is going to turn into a worldwide pandemic. Why? Because Saturn and Pluto conjuncted. By the way, that just happened just now with the uh, COVID-19 epidemic. Right. But so, but when I ran that chart, Jim and I looked at each other, it's like, oh God, oh God, this is going to turn into a global thing and it's going to take decades to, to for this to all work through. So Jim at that point, uh, uh, his uh, grad school on pause. Uh, we were, got into the process of uh, beginning the process that would lead to shutting down our uh, our beloved uh, uh, crazy bookstore uh, because we knew we were going to change our gear completely. We arranged and had a meeting with the Blood Bank of Delaware and the Director of Public Health in Delaware before they were doing anything to warn them that this was going to turn into a big deal. They didn't do anything. Uh, and by the way, we didn't mention any, we didn't mention the astrology or anything. Woo -woo. We just said things like bloodborne, mm -hmm. sex, needles. Let's, let's just do the math, guys. It didn't work. But Jim was the first person hired by the state of Delaware to do that work and eventually created that office. We sold our house, sold the store. We bought a building in downtown Wilmington. The, the first two floors were office space and meeting space for the AIDS group, 
the MCC, the hotline, everything else. And we lived on the third and fourth floor, in the, basically the third floor in the attic. So we basically transformed our life into HIV AIDS. And for uh, quite a number of years, that was it 24-7, in addition to doing our coven. And as a result of the fact that we were passionate about it, the uh, initial staff for what's currently the group is now called AIDS Delaware. Uh, the name has changed uh, twice over the existence of the group. But at that time, two-thirds of the staff that were doing, uh, running the buddy system, doing HIV antibody testing, et cetera, were pagans. So, it, so we, we actually were the first to respond in our state. So in an odd way, we were there at, at, at the beginning. Now, it was mortifying because, uh, I mean, there, there were years where it was normal for me to go to, you know, between 60 and 90 funerals uh, over the course of, of each year that oh were people God. that I actually knew. Um, and now here's one of the discussions that we had many times during that time period, which is pertinent to now. Now, I do not think for a variety of other reasons that uh, COVID will play out the same way HIV did, but I think that this is the first of a series of, of challenges to the uh, structures that support uh, health and wellness in, in our world uh, and in this country in particular. Right. But one of the things, as we were all dying, because there's only a handful of people from um, my uh, age group, uh, eight, I'm 61, Jim's 69, from our age group that are still around. But one of the things we kept telling each other is we have to have enough of us survive that know what it is to be sex positive, know what it is to actually have community where we hang out and take care of each other, know what it is to... Uh, experience all manner of things that we had created as a culture that were going to be wiped out. So, and, and they were for the most part wiped out. There were some survivors, but nonetheless, there was a break in the continuity of the transmission of an act of the, so, so like as a, for example, one of the things that happened with the death of so many of my generation in that particular moment is that we shifted from a culture of activism to a culture of we're just like the straights but different. Hmm. <clears throat> um, a lot of the so that th there was a lot more actual activism and we celebrate who we are, <clears throat> and then with the die-off came the oh we're we're going to try to assimilate rather than to be ourselves. If we look corporate enough, if we don't look scary, do you get the point? Yeah, no, I mean, to to be able to connect those, with that other side of the community to maybe get some connection so that they're the, either to, more supportive yeah. or recognize <clears throat> you or something. But the torch bearers, a lot of them were gone. A lot yeah. of the lore keepers, the culture bearers, a lot of the crazy, crazy, uh, wilder, you know, ecstatic dance wilder ecstatic dancers that would you know dance at the after hours club until five in the morning and had the most outrageous mm -hmm. uh stories and, and and outfits and lifestyles it was it was one of the things that uh and we're sort of experiencing now depending on how things last <clears throat> um the level of physical separation that we're experiencing now uh in the current pandemic is not that different than initially when people were afraid well we don't know how this is transmitted you have to understand that in those early, earliest days, the Red Cross wouldn't transport people. Uh, we, we, we had volunteers to pick people up at their houses and take them to the hospital. Uh, 
the first couple of people that died uh, in, from uh, HIV in Delaware, Jim and I and, uh, and, and our friends were you know, holding their hands at their bedside while everybody else was walking around just in spacesuits because we were pretty clear that it was bloodborne. But nonetheless, there are a variety of things that are insane um, that are happening with people's heads. And depending on how long this lasts or the next thing thereafter, mm-hmm. it could um, have an impact on what our culture looks like. What, and for pagans, since so much of our culture is transmitted or experienced in uh, settings such as uh, gatherings, conferences, bookstores, and so on, there's, there's a limit to what can be done. And sure, this, and we may be lucky, and, and I think we will be, and that COVID-19 won't become the next HIV. However, the economics of it are that uh, our, 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 our resources and infrastructure generally only survive by the thinnest of threads. It doesn't take much for an organization not to have seed money for next year's gathering, next year's conference, next year's uh, uh, bookstore events or bookstores period, or how many uh, pagan uh, or magical musicians, jewelers, painters, uh, puppeteers, uh, drummers uh, don't have gigs. Right. So, so there's a danger uh, to a loss of culture when these events come forth. But, it, but I will tell you that it was grinding misery uh, and, and also stealing yourself to the fact that there were many people who didn't care if you were the ones dying. In fact, we're happy that you were the ones dying. Oh, and mm-hmm. then it was just brown people. And the, oh, well, there's more brown and black people now. Oh, it's okay, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Well, it's not it's not directly affecting them, so it's not that big a deal to worry about. I will point out, and, and people that know the intensity, and I'll say one more thing, and I'll shut up about this because we could go on, unfortunately, forever. There was a, a moment where uh, I had signed up to testify at a state legislature because one of our uh, lawmakers had put in a bill that was basically to shut down all gay-owned establishments, restaurants, bars, hair salons, galleries, if it was owned by a queer person, to shut it down as a public health measure. What was his justification in that sense? Because obviously uh, uh, people that were queer were the primary uh, pocket from which uh, the uh, infection called HIV would arise so that we need to not have people come in contact with them. So we're going to shut down any business that's owned by run by queer people. That's so incredibly narrow. Yeah. Mm. Well, it did. And, and it didn't yeah. ha- and it did and it didn't happen though. Uh, even though I knew I was third on the list to speak, uh, we got to the end of the list and they still hadn't called me and I made a scene and I, you know, ended up having, being able to speak. But during that same time period in Congress, there were discussions about whether or not there was a need for internment camps for queer people. Oh my. That's how, what, what oh. a lot of people know is in that, in that time period, there was actually serious discussion, discussion about whether or not the U.S. was going to round up queer people and lock them up for the duration. Yeah. It's so the amount of how, so the amount of pa- the amount of panic that people were experiencing then looks feels vaguely deja vu at this moment. 
I was going to say, it's very eerie to hear that because when this first started, you had people calling out to essentially set up internment camps for Asian Americans right. again. Right. And to hear that during the HIV AIDS pandemic that they were talking about doing that with queers. And that's something that they don't really talk about in even the history classes or the, that's it, not something that's no, usually very not. highlighted because, and I understand why, if they were to go off and say, Hey, yeah, we were talking about doing this. I just imagine the backlash. Well, in, in that era, uh, as an example of, of uh, the kind of perspective. So there was a bar in uh, Wilmington, uh, Delaware called Stella's in the early days. And uh, that's after I'd moved to Wilmington. So there had uh, been a murder. Uh, you know, who, I don't know the exact details, but somebody who had been at Stella's that Saturday night got murdered later that evening, uh, whether it was uh, somebody they took home or who knows. Now, I was there that night. The next day, I got a call from friends. Every single one of them that had driven to that bar had been, gotten a call from the police because apparently every night, not just that night, but every night, they made it a practice to have the cops on the beat take down the license plates of everyone parked in the parking lot for that bar. So they were keeping tabs on the, park, on the license plates of everybody that was parked at the gay bar as a regular matter of course thing at the time. And they didn't see a problem with that? I mean, that's just frustrating. No, they didn't. They didn't. They didn't. Uh, a couple of years after that, uh, I was trying to get a, a delegate slot to go to the Democratic Convention. Back, that was back when uh, Jesse Jackson was running. And uh, I was going to be a Jackson delegate, which they didn't want for a variety of reasons. But uh, so I started getting phone calls from people in the party telling me to back off. You know, you haven't put in your dues yet, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, that, and I said, no, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going. Now, in the end, I ended up not going because the, at the convention, there was the state convention, there was some voting stuff that got rid of me and put somebody else in my place. However, the other thing that happened is immediately after I said, no, I'm not changing my mind, there were like three attempts by people. And now this is my, I'm going to speculate. But immediately after that, I had three people try to approach me in public bathrooms and in other settings. And after a while, and I was saying, no, guys, uh -uh. and I said, crap, I'm some, they're trying to entrap me. They're trying to get me to do something in public that can then be used against me to prevent me to, from doing this. I wrote, an, I wrote a letter to the editor in that era uh, to the, uh, to the uh, paper of record. It's a Gannett paper nowadays, the news journal. And ab about uh, uh, a couple of police brutality things that had occurred in, in, in town. And they refused to publish the letter. I asked for an appointment with the public editor. And at the time I still had, a, had the bookstore so I could make my own hours to a degree. <clears throat> I sat from beginning of day to end of day in the lobby waiting to see the public editor, didn't see me. 
came back the second day, didn't see me. The third day they relented and uh, I talked to the public editor and a very edited version of my letter eventually saw the light of day. But it was that era and in some ways we're not out of that yet. And there's, I'm gonna say something about generations. It's all mm -hmm. bullshit. As an astrologer, you can, you can point out differences in generations based on uh, which, which pl outer planets are in what places because it emphasizes particular things that they're likely to do. But really, uh, when, when people are talking about, well, this generation didn't do this, that, or the other thing, really what you should be looking at it is uh, every generation's uh, activists eventually get worn down or they remain cranky and active to, to a degree, as I am. But the thing is, the people that actually want to make change in any generation are always the smallest, tiniest sliver percentage of that generation. There has never been a generation of activists, a generation of movers and shakers that want to change the world upside down. Everybody likes to think they are. But if there was actually, if you actually want to look at it in a more realistic way, it's not what age somebody is or what color somebody is, or what accent they have is, how do they think? Mm -hmm. Those are your people, the ones that think uh, and, and have a desire to change the world in the ways that you do. Everything else is extraneous. Okay. Yeah. That's definitely a good like highlight. Um, and you talk about some of the things that happened I remember growing up and hearing about like Matthew Shepard and I grew oh, yeah. up in, in Michigan and there was a guy who was going to the gay bar in Saginaw and then killing the guys he'd bring home and then getting rid yeah. of the bodies. And I think yeah, it was a lie. Yeah, yeah. And it's just you hear about that kind of stuff and it's like oh that that was so long ago but no. realistically that was 20 years ago mm -hmm. for some of those yeah um and well, that's it's happening nowadays with 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 the uh, craigslist or grinder mm -hmm. or scruff or whatever well and you're not seeing it just in the gay community you're actually no. uh seeing it with the trans community quite a bit too uh, one of my uh, friends is a big uh, like trans advocate and speaks out on it. And the scary thing is, is unless you know what to look for, mm -hmm. it gets swept under the rug and you general populace has no idea as to what's going on. And going back, that was the exact same way that the murders of gay people during that time and it, it's kind of scary how close we are to being tipped right back over into oh this this isn't an important hell look at the uh murder of the african-american man running through the uh in georgia in, in georgia yeah. yeah yeah and the defense and the, and that was given when people actually went to go look and see, oh yeah, there there were people that had their houses broken into. Not a single report existed right. for home invasion or burglary during that time. So it became obvious that this was just a 
you know, oh, yeah, just say it was this and sweep it under the rug. It would have completely gone and that has unseen. All, and, 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 uh, and the thing is that the vast majority of stories uh, like that don't get seen. And, and that I'm glad that, that because of the video being leaked and people sharing on social media, that reached enough people to bring it to the forefront. But something that's true, as true today as it was in the days when newspapers were the primary source of information. In the old days with newspapers and the argument I had when I was trying to get a letter to the editors, oh, there's only so many column inches. In other words, uh, X number of uh, columns of space available for everything on the letters to the editor page and, or any other page, right? And we could say, well, we have an infinite number of columns of inches with uh, uh, digital media and uh, social media, et cetera, et cetera. And actually we don't. We still only have the amount of attention span and focus that individuals have to see things over the course of a day and to absorb it or not gloss over or scroll past it or uh, escape the bubble they've created by the algorithms of what they like. So we still live in a world where the vast majority of what's going on in the world is is not visible or accessible to most people. And in that regard, uh, and I'm gonna bring it back to magic, magical people uh, have a special power to share that is similar to what the various kinds of LGBTQI and fill in whatever letter we add next community. We tend to, and we're not perfect by a long shot, so I'm speaking in bell-shaped curves, as a, for example, um, if you look at uh, people in one of our covens, you're going to find a disparate uh, group of people. You're going to find a broader range of economic backgrounds, uh, childhood backgrounds, ethnicities, races. Queer people and pagan people tend to know people that fall outside of whatever narrow niche they were raised in. So that there is a greater... Uh, interweaving of different communities that happens both in paganism and in the queer community. Good news is that that has the potential for us to be more aware of what's actually going on in a broader sense. But what's also true is that that, uh, that interweaving means that there are new places where the, it's a different kind of intersectionality. It's a different There are different places where we can actually rub each other the wrong way. So the, the challenge is this can give us a, a, a truer view of what's going on, or it can cause the kind of friction that'll, that uh, makes us dig in our heels and choose not to cooperate with each other. One thing that uh, is, is, uh, I, is a problem from my perspective right now is that we don't give people time to come up to speed. Uh, there's a lot to absorb that's going on in the world, let alone learn about uh, what racism really is or what gender is or isn't or economic theory. Fill in the blank for whatever it is. It's a lot to do. And uh, we don't give people the – now, I'm not saying we should uh, give people a pass or, or, uh, or let people be idiots for, for years and years and years. However, if something is new to somebody – they, they, they have to have X amount of time to get into it. In the same way that uh, when I was uh, coming up and out, 
we had a lot of uh, coming out groups and consciousness raising groups whose sole purpose was for a place who was brand new to claiming an, an identity that they uh, weren't sure about to explore who they were and to come to terms with it because people in the early stages of, of, of coming out as anything, whether it's a uh, queer of some flavor or, or trans or pagan or uh, fill in the blank for whatever it is, do a lot of flailing. Yeah. And that, and it's not elegant <laughs> and it's messy. And if, and if you, and if you, if they're flailing and you're too close, you're going to get smacked by their flailing hands and elbows. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, it, it, there's also a question of, of uh, we're so overwhelmed that we don't necessarily give people time to figure things out and they do stupid stuff and then they get per, put in permanently into the you're a bad person pile. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, I think part of the reason for that is it has to do with our uh, community connecting through technology mm-hmm. and the fact that there is a very it makes sharp it harder. Of, yeah, because everything yeah. is so everything is either instantaneous or expected to be instantaneous. Right. And, uh, you know, so, you're expected to already know this is how you should be thinking. And it does take some folks a little while to start adjusting if they ever do and if they ever do right because some folks just don't want to mm-hmm. right uh, right you know, absolutely i it's just some folks are happy sticking with what they know and what they're most familiar with and never really going outside those boundaries if they can ever help themselves right right, right. it's easier change is possible change, I, i'm gonna say so remember that bill that uh, was going to shut down all uh, queer-owned business establishments. Mm -hmm. One of the sponsors of that bill was a uh, white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Republican by the name of Bill Oberly. And flash forward about uh, 28 years or so, and he is, he, along with uh, other people, are sponsors of the bill that eventually results in uh, civil rights for queer people in Delaware and ultimately is one of the sponsors for the bill that allowed my husband and I to get married. So he went from trying to shut us down and put us in internment camps to sponsoring our rights. Mm. It didn't happen overnight and uh, there was a lot of many, many difficult encounters with him, but he eventually got a clue. Now, uh, and I'm going to say this was a stroke of, of uh, fate or magic or nemesis, but his mentor uh, and, and primary sponsor of most of the awful bills got struck dead. Literally, you know, nobody knows. He just fell dead. <laughs> wow. Mm. Shortly um, after that public hearing. Okay. And uh, it's, do you know who, um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop. I, I, here's the problem. This could turn into, into nothing but the, the, the long and sorted history of, of things that aren't necessarily important to everybody. But but uh, there's so many little bits of history on the on the queer stuff that that uh, are meaningful, and important. 
the mm-hmm. way, the bookstore that was primarily a pagan bookstore, but also had other stuff, the uh, city of Wilmington did try to shut us down twice. Oh. And uh, one, one of the times that they tried to shut us down was because we were, we were selling uh, stuff that uh, was uh, too, too graphic. Now, we were broke all the time uh, when we were running that store because we had chosen not to, st- not to sell or stock any erotic magazines. Even though, by the way, at that era, and actually most eras, that was the bread and butter that kept most uh, uh, lesbian and gay bookstores open. Mm-hmm. But we didn't sh- said no, they'll immediately shut us down. So they tried to shut us down for selling our bodies ourselves. What? <laughs> well, there are, gra- there are graphic drawings of, of, of women's parts in it, are there not? Yeah, but it's such a generic. uh, It's it's a health book. It's a health book. Yeah, no, I mean like the the their uh their their you know legal enforcement of it's too broad. It's too generic. It's not specific enough, and it's clearly not taking into consideration the fact that this is a health book. This is not something. it's under your, uh, you know, your description or in any way. So, so knock it off. <laughs> so, so what's, what's, sa- well, and actually the only thing that saved us in that moment was that Jim and I had uh, worked on several political campaigns and we called up uh, our, a county councilwoman and a city councilwoman that we had worked on their campaigns and said, could you please do something about this? And they did. Now, one could argue that uh, uh, public servants, well, politicians often aren't, but they should be public servants, should simply do that out of what's right. Not really. Usually they do it because they know that you worked hard as a volunteer for them. We didn't have the money to give, so we had worked many hours on phone banks and whatnot. And they stepped up and they prevented us from being shut down. The part that is also part of the game, and whether that's, uh, by the way, it applies to all the pagan stuff we've done. I can't tell you how many times the difference uh, between op- a door opening and a door closing has been uh, how well connected you are in other ways in life. Uh, the, first, uh, the first time that we held uh, the Between the Worlds conference that uh, my organization runs, we had to go to four hotels before one of them would say yes to it because it looked uh, spooky, scary, weird to them. Oh, good grief. Well, no. Too much woo-woo? Think about the... T- no. No, at that time, if anything pagan uh, or occult was automatically dark and scary and uh, possibly psychotic. Right. Mm, okay. So we had... So Jim and I ended up having to call the banker that we had worked with to, you know, get several mortgages and business loans and whatnot to talk to the hotel and say, yo, these guys are legit. And I had to give them uh, my, my business's credit card. And they put like 27,000, it was a lot of money back then, $27,000 on hold in case we, I don't know, uh, tore the place up or something. Wow. That's still a lot of money now. Wow. Yeah. But, but, but my, my point was that we, I don't care what you do. 
um, which community you're a part of. But if your community has to interact with the rest of the world, it is good to have allies outside of your community that you've traded favors with or that you've traded uh, vouchers for uh, respectability points or uh, legit, being legit so that you can actually have people to back you up when you need them. Jim was uh, the, until he retired, uh, his last job with the state of Delaware was as the Bureau Chief for Health Services for the Department of Correction. Do you suppose that uh, wardens and correctional officers and commissioners and whatnot are particularly inclined as, as a, now there are exceptions, but speaking in bell-shaped curves, they're not the most progressive people. Here's the thing about choosing to be open. Jim was out to them as queer, a witch, poly, and kinky. There were people that tried to block him regularly and cause problems. Um, he, I think though the, the most angry they got with him was uh, when he managed to force the issue and there was a day-long mindfulness training session for all the wardens. But I'm sure they loved that. They, Mm -hmm. <laughs> day of meditation it was good for them but uh but the, there was a time that uh, at last minute the commissioner uh, said jim you're coming with me to this conference i need you because you know the figures for the following health issues in our prison system blah 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 so jim had to stop what he was doing pack up and leave while they were on the plane jim was like you know hemming and hawing and he texted me a few times and he said well what's going on it's like well we were having about 150 people over to our place for a weekend ritual and workshop. And I'm leaving Evo to hang on to, to hold down the fort while I'm gone. About a week after that conference, I got a, I got a apology note for having ripped Jim away without checking to see if Jim didn't have another commitment that he had to do something about. Hmm. It's an interesting By the way. Uh, but, but, but the thing was that, uh, that we had traded favors, we had traded uh, uh, legitimacy points. Like uh, at the beginning of Jim's process there, I ended up creating, a, because they couldn't wait for the state IT department, I created the database that initially was being used to keep track of uh, complaints from inmates about uh, improper healthcare access. They replaced it eventually, but for the first six months, that's what they used, and I didn't charge them a penny for it. So it's like, okay, you're willing to help us. My point is, whatever you do, make sure that you have uh, some basis of power outside of your community, because that's the only way you can actually help your community. Mm -hmm. So kind of have that uh, social goodwill with other groups. And, and especially mundane ones, and especially ones that you don't normally think of, as, uh, and they don't have to actually believe or agree, but they have to uh, understand that what you're doing is serious and important to you and that you're not a crackpot because the biggest thing that is underlying societal responses on some level, there's the background hum of the message that says these people are whack jobs or they're not really serious about what they do or uh, there, there's something suspect about this. Well, you have to show them that you're actually not those things if you actually want to get their cooperation and help. And you, and you can, and by the way, if you decide that you can't do that, 
there's an ecology of change makers, activists, et cetera. And if that's not for you, then you, you go and, and get arrested and be the craziest uh, street activist you, possible because that serves a purpose as well. You require a fully filled ecology of different kinds of change makers to add up to a thing that works. I mean, hell, during the AIDS HIV epidemic, I loved uh, the fact that ACT UP was out there creating all sorts of drama because I, more than once I said, look, looking into the eyes of uh, the uh, doctor who was running the uh, Blue Ribbon Commission on AIDS from the Delaware Medical Society saying, would you rather talk to me or do you want to make an appointment with the folks from ACT UP? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's, that's one hell of a threat there. Well, no, but the point, the point is that if you have people doing the full gamut of things, you get more progress. So don't fight people that, uh, oh, they shouldn't be doing that. No, do, do what you do and do it well. And let other people do stuff that you think is less effective or crazy because guess what? It fills a need. Mm -hmm. No, it, it, when you start talking about people acting up and acting out, I, instinctually think of like stonewall because yeah, that's yeah. a big element in gay history right um and without it that we wouldn't have had a lot of the movements that came after it or the awareness it's very it, true i think i think that would yes that yeah i agree that one brought a lot of awareness there was a lot going on um before then as well there were already gay organizations yeah. uh, lesbian organizations in the country before stonewall uh, I, actually there was a the, the, the beginnings of uh, the movement uh, in the mid to late 1800s okay so uh, but that caught the eye of the media and is mm -hmm. also dramatic in a way that it can be mythologized or told as a story more easily than uh, this organization did this and published this and right. blah, blah, blah. It, it catches, it's like a really good song. It's catchy. Mm -hmm. Okay. There were, uh, there were, there were, there were a number of uh, the, the first uh, actual uh, gay rights riots, if you will, uh, that count as riots actually probably took place uh, right after World War II. Uh, a lot of them uh, in towns where there were a lot of returning troops. Mm -hmm. I do remember reading uh, like some letters that had been sent that are now just, you know, being actively shared online. It goes, it goes deeper than that. Uh, think about it this way. You've, you've just almost died a dozen different ways and seen uh, bloody, gory, horribleness uh, repeatedly. And you've had all sorts of strong emotional bonding with the other people that made it through the process of getting through a war as well. You've, mm -hmm. you've uh, taken a journey home. You arrive home. By the way, have you ever wondered why uh, those, uh, uh, the, the particular look of leather jackets and whatnot is associated with uh, the leather community and the kink community? Hmm. Uh, those were the... Those were those were the the leather jackets from World War II that they came home in. Okay. 
That's what fetishized them. That's, and that's what allowed them to identify. They were there too. I bet you they'll understand. So that the first, the first gatherings of, of, uh, of gay guys post the were in significant numbers was actually post-World War II when a lot of them were like, I almost died several times. I don't care what's going to happen. I'm going to make myself happy. Mm. By the way, San Fran, San Fran became the queer town it is because that was the, the uh, drop-off point for a lot of the guys coming back from the yes. Pacific Theater. Okay, okay. Yeah. But the, the first, the first, uh, the first organizations grew out of people that had had a really awful experience together and were trying to to find a way to feel alive again. Oh, that really makes me wonder. I wonder what the statistics and or the data is based off of. Uh, where people ended up after World War II and rehomed, and the yep. prevalence of the gay communities and hotspots there. Because they match, actually. Long Beach is like San Francisco 2.0. Yep. And yep. there yep. was, you know, there used to be a Navy, uh, not just, there was a shipyard there, and um, uh, a Navy base and a shipyard. I think it was a base. Uh, anyway, so there was a, a very heavy presence of military in that area uh, from World War II all along the coast. Anyway, I don't know. My brain's thinking about a bunch of different things, and I'm wondering if there's stats to kind there's, of there's, correlate there's that a, together. I, I, I think that you'll find that that's the case. But, but the other thing is that... Uh, if, if, if we come back, you know, 100 years from now, who knows which things people are going to look at and say, oh, that was the blah, 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 that was the trigger for the following thing in whatever the sexual minority communities call themselves at that moment. Or this was a turning point for the pagan community, or this was a turning point for the occult community or the magical community or whatever it is we end up calling ourselves. Because, you know, uh, it's, it's actually almost required that uh, every generation come up with a new name for itself. So what, what would you consider, uh, are you talking about like, just like generations like the boomers and Gen X, or are you talking no. about? I'm talking in, in this in this particular case, I'm talking about uh, waves of paganism. Right. So or, I, wave, or waves of, of queer activism. So in paganism, I, it was funny because I was thinking about this very recently, about how, how, how the new generation is, and how very different they are in their approach, a lot of them. Not all. Um, but the, the, the public presence, there's a look, there's an aesthetic, and they approach things very differently than my generation and your generation um and and i'm like you know we've got the names for generations like boomers gen x whatever it, and it would be interesting to see do we have names for our pagan generations i don't think we do and and, and at least i'm not aware of of, of of clear names but and the other thing is that we're engaging in a uh, 
differentiation event where more and more flavors and threads, like, I'll give you an example. Uh, sometime in the 90s, I was having a conversation with an Asatru friend mm -hmm. and, I, and, and uh, basically saying, it's a, just you wait, dude, 20 years from now, there will, everything that you think is true about your community uh, will, will have split into a trillion different ways. Because at the time, the vast majority of people following that particular uh, heathen path, Norse path, uh, had n very little use for magic of any sort and uh or or drumming or dancing or chanting or magic in general and was very very staunchly devotional uh focused on particular things and i said that's great and you are basically the gardenarians of your of your system and if you come back in 20 years there will be 20 30 different other names that people will call themselves by and they will be doing practices that are wild are getting wider and wider divergent from what you are. You are the starting point, but it's almost like uh, Darwin and the finches. You know, a bird arrives on a on a barren island, and when the, within the course of a couple of thousand years, you end up with a bazillion new species. Each a bird, each adjusted for whatever niche they're filling. Mm -hmm. This year, I had a, this this past year, I had a friend that went to East Coast thing, which is one of the larger heathen events. Okay. And they hadn't been for a lot. They hadn't been for a lot of years, and they said, "Oh my God, you were right. There was a <laughs> fire circle, and people were dancing, and there was outright magic in, in several of the rituals, and 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 only a small percentage of them were identifying as Asatru. There were a dozen names I didn't recognize, and I said, and that's the nature of everything. Um, nothing stays the same. Sure. Everything uh, everything evolves." Uh, everything changes, but there is, but so that each, so what I'm saying is that each stream or thread or family grouping and more, and by family, I mean more like, you know, mammals, uh, uh, avians, reptiles, you know, kind of like a broad category, mm -hmm. evolve in different directions. And each of them have their own names for their generations because our generations don't necessarily overlap. So like uh, the heathens eventually entered their witch war era in the mm -hmm. same way that uh, that uh, witches had their witch war era because there's always conflict when you have enough differentiation that you sort of look like each other but you're not exactly the same anymore it's kind of like the the kind of silliness that happens when you know 10 different uh, protestant sects argue with each other about and i'm listening it's like man you guys sound the same to me but those minute differences or small differences from my perspective are huge to them Right. So each generation creates uh, uh, creates its own names for itself. Now, I will say that uh, that uh, one of the things that's different is that in, when I started being involved in paganism, um, you you identified other pagans in very subtle ways. Uh, but but for for example, uh, in my era, you couldn't go to a store or go online and buy a ton of witchy looking jewelry or, or, uh, or, or clothing that was designed to appeal to, to a witch aesthetic. Mm -hmm. But I always looked funny. If I, if I saw somebody wearing an onk, I paid attention. Yeah. If I saw somebody, if I saw somebody paint wearing some, you know, art nouveau jewelry that looked vaguely goddessy, mm -hmm. I, I started paying attention. If I saw a discreet little strand of, of amber 
I started paying attention. But but uh, but but they were wearing things, or if, if somebody decided to look quasi, uh, uh, you know, Victorian or something, it's like, or 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 wearing a uh, oh, or wearing a long flowy thing. Oh, they're just a leftover hippie. And I go, no, that hippies that doesn't look like hippie gear. That looks like uh, pagan gear. Mm. So the point is that we we could identify each other by subtle subtle cues, and uh, nowadays you can go outfit yourself to look like uh, the, the, the most uh, occult thing that you like. By the way, I, I, I actually kind of love it when people express visually and, and whatever it is that they do. Yeah. Uh, and, and I have no objection to, to uh, people. Actually, I think it does us good uh, when people dress the witch aesthetic that aren't witches. Really? Okay. I actually do. Because it brings do. it to a sort of uh, a normalization, do you think? No, no. I hate normalization. But here's what it does do. It makes it easier for anybody that has to be in stealth mode to be in stealth mode. It mm. also uh, begins, it also makes it easier to bleed ideas and concepts to have an impact on changing the world around you. Like, I cannot tell you how many things over the years I've seen move from minority communities to become embraced as something that is part of the broader community. And I'm not talking about appropriation, right? But here's the thing. When somebody appreciates a particular style or a particular style of music or I mean, come on, pagans created the term poly. How many non pagans use the term poly nowadays? Nowadays. A lot. Yeah. So, so, so that it's not about normalization. It's, it's about having an impact on changing the culture, injecting little bits of paganism into the culture, because that actually is a good thing in the same way that um, a lot of things that were normal in the queer community have become normal in certain parts of, of the broader culture. And I'm happy for it. Uh, I, I think that along with other people and forces and movements, the uh, the, the weakening of uh, gender roles applied to relationships is something that has bled over into the broader community from a variety of other places. So if somebody is, uh, is, is looking really witchy and is collecting crystals, on the one hand, I can... It, 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 it hurts me when, when I walk into a store and I look at candles and little sage bundles and crap being sold, you know? Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, if it, I'm all for portals of entry and uh, we don't recruit, we don't proselytize, but hey, if, uh, if one half of 1% of the people that play dress up find that this is actually their portal of entry to find their paganism, I'm all for it. And if the rest are just playing dress up until they get tired of it, it doesn't harm me in any way. Any more than, than somebody, uh, you know, dressing up, uh, I don't know, um, in preppy gear doesn't defend me. Okay. I know some people take great offense to those that are pretending um, that are are dressing in the whatever aesthetic they consider witches to have or witchy type aesthetics and, but aren't actual witches or pagans or anything of that nature. 
Yeah, it, it, though, though, interestingly enough, so when I was a baby pagan, witch hats were considered offensive. Yeah. Most people, most people thought witch hats were like so offensive because <laughs> it, 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 it focused on the stereotypes of yep. what people were told witches were. And, and flash forward a couple of decades, and you've got all sorts of people wearing witch hats as kind of like an emblem of pride and a kind of, I have reclaimed this in the same way that, you know, words like dyke and faggot can become something that people claim as their own. So the witch hat became something positive as a reclaimed symbol when for a time it was perceived as something quite negative. Things change. Yes, they do. How, you know, the only thing I'll find offensive is like there's pl there's several shades of yellow that I can't wear because they make me look like I'm sick. <laughs> so if somebody is dressing in a way that that uh, just doesn't doesn't suit them well, that's a different matter than. But honestly, how do people find if something is theirs or not, whether or not they have to try it on? And uh, you know, I, I still dress up this way occasionally, but you know, I had my days a goth. You know, I had my day uh, dancing to ska music. I have more than enough dead cow in the in the in the in the uh, closet for for leather <laughs> events. I have a, a, a wide range of of uh, hey, I, you know what commitment is walking uh, gay pride in New York City in June, uh, wearing your chaps, your shirt, your cover, the gloves, the whole deal, and doing the whole walk in the heat with nothing but that on. Uh, no. Oh my gosh! Yeah, that's commitment. I I, I had a part. I had a part in, a, in the parade, so I had to. Mm -hmm. But the point is, the point is, um, people try on different identities to see what fits, and if in the process, uh, oh well, you know, I'm not going to have a negative attitude about witches because I used to dress like one. We hope. I mean. Uh... I've seen, you know, there's there's a couple stories of people doing 180s, but yeah, hopefully, hopefully they would rethink that. But but I guess what I'm saying is that uh, if it's not getting on me, I'm okay with people doing weird shit, including dressing up like a witch when they're not. Okay. The only thing the only thing that I that I uh, think is dangerous uh, is when pagans of any kind, and I'm sorry, I'm using that p word. Thank you. Tempest for coming up with the term P word. Uh, Tempest, uh, Laura Zakharov. Yes. I love her. I love her. But P word is, a good, is as good as anything because we don't have a good replacement at the moment. But when, when it's kind of like this death spiral of being uh, spookier than thou or more dark than thou or, 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 or I have found the moldiest uh, uh, tome on the planet and that will be the thing I use. It's kind of like, guys, Guys, you know, it, when when did when did uh, being a, a good and powerful pagan uh, equate uh, to being an edge lord? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a good question. And then I think that kind of harkens back to, um, you know, people what the things that people are embracing that are part of what they consider. Uh, when they think of, oh, this is what a witch is about, and then 
they uh, grab onto all the horror films that they watched when they were teenagers. And then they use those stereotypes and then they consider this the aesthetic. Well, or, or yeah, that's, that's, and that's common. And there's also the, uh, I, I need to be wild. I need to be free. I need to be primal. What does that really mean? Because, and, and I actually going to say that that is something that is part of a lot of witchcraft, trying to find authentic connection to your, your wild self, your primal self. The, the problem that every generation has is that our wild self or primal self is often tangled up in whatever our society's shadow depiction of it is. Mm-hmm. So you have to weed through and see what's legitimately an authentic yours and what is not. And, and what is simply grabbing the, the, uh, the, the costume or the image that was the, the broadest, uh, had the broadest reach in your formative years. Okay. So I'm not saying that, that uh, I'm not saying that everybody gets through it and that's mm-hmm. okay. Uh, but I, I guess that, that uh, one of the differences between most not all, but most flavors of, of uh, paganism of one flavor, another witchcrafter, it's not meant for everybody. It's meant for the people that, that uh, find it to be suitable to their temperament and to their heart. Uh, and if it's not fitting you, then maybe you're in the wrong flavor. That's a really good point of view. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's find, find the one that works for you. If it's not working, don't try to overturn uh, it unless you're willing to invest uh, being there for decades uh, until it looks like what you want it to be. But you know what? It might be easier to just change channels and find something that's actually, hey, that's what I like. Hmm. That is... Uh... Well, and I think that's what's great about that is it sort of reinforces the point that there is no one way. Right. Which is something that I do hear, especially from the generation before me and from my own generation in this community. There's only one way to practice. There's only one way to be. And everybody has to be like this or that or the other thing. As an example, there was a, Mm-hmm. A woman who used to own a store here in Orange County, and she was. Uh, I went. I, I did an interview for um, TV show called The Secret Lives of Women, and mm-hmm. it was. You know, I was one of three people they featured in this TV show, and uh, she was really unhappy with the fact that the producers had approached me. And it was partly because I think at the time I was um, I was the national public information officer for the Covenant of the Goddess at the time. Oh, oh, oh. I remember what. Yeah, yeah. And uh, anyway, so she was really unhappy that they had approached me because, well, I'm fat and brown, and she didn't like how I physically looked. And she felt that if anybody should do it, it should be her because she looked like Stevie Nicks, dressed like Stevie Nicks. <laughs> and so therefore, she, she, um, she decided that she was going to try and actually uh, have me 
undercut me on the show and approached the producers who I had already been talking with for months before we even began filming. And this was the week we were going to mm -hmm. start filming and she had approached them and tried to usurp my, my role. Mm -hmm. And uh, also at the same time, tried to uh, propose doing a ritual where she was at the helm with her priest and that I would be this random third wheel priestess, which I didn't understand. <laughs> uh, because apparently she didn't know or didn't understand that I was now in my third coven. I had been trained mm -hmm. through three different traditions at this point. I was more than capable of hosting and, and putting on a ritual. Uh, anyway, so um, she tried yeah. to present herself as if she was my, it's just this weird thing. And she was really unhappy about it. And it actually ended our friendship because <clears throat> of it which is too bad, but you know, whatever she didn't end up, she did end up making it into the show, but, um, she really embarrassed herself with it. So I wasn't there that day. When they you know, that that's part. a shame. That, that's a shame. And, and it's also not, not an unusual story. Unfortunately, it happens a lot. Yeah. I'm going to be cranky and say it, all, everything that was still is. Uh, the, the gate, you know, the gatekeeping, and it's funny how gatekeeping used to be a good word, and now it's a bad word, and it will be a good word and a bad word several more times over the next decades. So I know a number of people, and it's not a generational thing, though. I will say that when I was first coming into this, um, there were several covens that would have nothing to do with me because as a gay man, they couldn't figure out how I could possibly play in their rain, reindeer games because polarity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, on the other hand, there were other covens that came from similar lineages that said, oh, okay, fine. Tell us what you do. So, so that, uh, and, and today I will, f I, I find uh, people that are 20 somethings and 30 somethings that use different criteria, but are also excluding people that don't fit their perspective on whether or not they would be a good fit for, for uh, doing magic with them. Mm -hmm. The criteria varies, but I think it's an innate human thing, uh, a bad human thing, actually, to use uh, spirituality, religion, magic, all that, the whole combination of things that are in this overlapping Venn diagram kind of thing to establish value uh, like the, the the unfortunate woman who was trying to cut you out, right? Yeah, I mean, people. The, the problem is when you do not value yourself, and you ascribe your validity and your importance to this thing that you're a part of, whether it's a tradition or a coven or a particular identity that you claim, when that is your source of power as a person, then you will always end up finding ways to try to exclude others if they don't fit your criteria for supporting your sense of importance. I think that one of the things that uh, one of my teachers taught me, uh, Shakma Windrum, and there, she, she taught me many things both by her example and also by ways that she would do things that I would go, I am never going to do it that way. And 
I think sometimes the best teachers teach you both in the negative and positive ways. But one thing that she did repeatedly is remind people that what we did in ritual was important. And when we worked with the powers, the gods, the goddesses, the energy, the earth energies, whatever, when we did the work, that's what made uh, made a difference in our own lives and in, and in the world. And that our power came from our experience in in ritual, or in doing the magic, not which rank we had or which degree we had or anything else of that nature. In 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 olden days, let's say that by the way, small towns. I live in a small area. And, and villages in old days were horrible in one regard because of, of the tremendous social pressure that can be brought to bear when your world is that small. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, there is a tremendous power when you know that people around you know your people, know your life history, know your background, have been around you for a long time so that you feel seen, you feel known, and you feel like you matter and that if you vanish tomorrow, you would be remembered. And one of the problems today is it's really easy to forget that we matter and that we will be remembered and we substitute valid sources of, of inner strength and power with, with uh, games. Right. That's true. See that a lot. A lot. But, I, but, I, but honestly, right now I see it play out with, I'm among young pups as I'm more traditional than you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? No, no, I see it all the time. It's like, it's like my staying is bigger than your staying. Yeah. I'm getting tired of it all. Or I got these herbs uh, from so-and-so who collected them under the dark of the moon beneath Mount Shasta. And because we did three drilling, drilling things with them and burned them and then quenched this and blah, 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 blah. It's like, that's all really good, but that doesn't necessarily make you a better practitioner. Right. No, what I've learned in my teachings has been a lot. The, what you do is important, but not as important as the intention that you put into the work that you do. Having that background and having that education is important, but sure, it's not the end-all be-all. And sometimes you have to work with what you have. It's great to have you know, herbs that are harvested under the dark of the moon uh, from Mount Shasta and you've done all this stuff, but not everybody's going to be able to have that. And it doesn't necessarily mean that your practice or your magic's weaker or a lesser form just because you don't spend that money to get those special herbs from an Etsy shop or something. Right. Hell, I I talked somebody through an emergency working to clear up a problem uh, when they were traveling, and they did a kick-ass ritual that cleared up the problem using a pencil uh, as as a wand and a paperclip bent to resemble loosely an athame. And it worked. (laughs) I mean, if you're... 
truthfully, if you're well-trained, if you at least right. know what you're doing, you don't need any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. no though though I, I will say that uh, well-trained is partially knowledge, right. but the biggest part of well-trained is, is not knowledge. It is developing the habit of feeling powerful. Right. Understanding what you're, at least having the understanding of what you're working with and how to work with it. Yeah. And believing that you can actually do it. Yes. Down to your bones. Mm-hmm. No, that is very accurate. <laughs> so moving on to some other topics, because I think we could sit here and ah. uh, talk oh about... I just looked at the clock. Yeah, it, we, we've been on for about two hours at this point. Um, I want to highlight some of the books that you've written. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it looks like the last one you wrote was a couple of years ago. Uh, Keys so, to perception. Yes. Yeah. Keys to perception is the, uh, psychic development, uh, perceptions book. Um, then there's Casting Sacred Space. There's Spirit Speak, which is about working with the, with the beings. There's Practical Astrology for Witches and Pagans. Um, there's Beneath the Skins, if you can find a copy that's a collection of essays from the 90s about the uh, leather and kink community. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have, yeah, I, I'm both embarrassed and proud of it because it's from the 90s and I read it and I go, oh, you know, I, my thoughts weren't too bad for the era. Right. And then other parts are, are <laughs> and other parts are remarkably embarrassing. Aww. That's the nature of writing books, right? Right. Hindsight's twenty twenty, and you become your own worst critic. Yeah, but then you can go and when you do the 10-year anniversary or the 20-year anniversary, uh, go and uh, do that little additional chapter or two beforehand that says, by the way. You know, yeah, <clears throat> if, if if you have the luck to do that, that's a, that's a lovely thing. Sure. And I also uh, have uh, a book that is currently in limbo because of COVID nineteen. That's uh, mm-hmm. about the four elements that uh, Wiser <laughs> has the manuscript for, but you know everybody's holding back on schedules at this point because who knows? Exactly. Well, but, wait, can't they? Uh, I mean, if it's not. <clears throat> I know the bookstores aren't necessarily well, he, open right now, but can they put it online? No, you know, it's, it's, it's a, the business is really complicated and it's actually easier for them to put a pause on a lot of things until the bookstores are open. The uh, shipping lines are, are working again because the books, the publishers don't make a hell of a lot of money off of the digital versions. Regardless, it's a book about the four elements, but it's actually uh, a deeper look at them. Basically, in the writing process, I pulled every book off the shelves I had that was about the four elements and then looked at that so that I could avoid writing about most of the things that had already been written. Because my goal was to bring up material that was in the intermediate or advanced category or lesser used perspectives. So that's the one that's kind of like waiting reality the one i'm writing right now tentative title because you know publishers change the title of your books you rarely get to pick it 
-hmm. is uh, Level Up, Level Up, which is a book about shaping, moving, controlling energy or magic. It's kind of like the flip side to Keith's perception. Rather than it being the receptive and perceptive talents, it's the active and shaping, manipulating talents. So it's, it's about actually moving and using power. Mm -hmm. And so that's the one that I'm probably going to, I'll probably finish that manuscript in like the next four months, especially since I'm home more than usual. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think the one after that will probably be a book about ritual design because oh. there really, there's really only a handful of books out there specifically from a pagan perspective on how to write and implement uh, rituals, especially public ones. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And, mm. and there's so much that people don't necessarily recognize the difference between if you're doing a private ritual versus how you have yeah. to restructure it for public. Oh, yeah. So many and, things. And, and, the, and, the, and the problems related to scale. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, That's awesome. So, the, um, so that uh, I have... Uh, like a long, long, long list of things that I'd like to write about. But I'm in an in a odd position at, at any given time because even though I write books and that's part of what I do, uh, my primary duty responsibility is uh, as, as one of the elders in the Assembly of the Sacred Wheel. And, you know, we're 14 covens at this point and there's a lot of stuff that happens inside the tradition because one of the things that we did as we structured the tradition is that... Uh, each coven actually interacts a lot with all the other covens. It's, uh, it's kind of intentionally the opposite of the normal coven format where covens within any given tradition are free floating uh, objects. Okay. Uh, as, as, so for example, our second degree ritual mm -hmm. can't be done without importing people from uh, two or three other of our covens. Well, I, I get that. Uh, I get, we operate our, our, very our, similarly. Our, our, our third degree is not granted uh, by the coven that you trained in. Uh, the people that trained you and brought you through uh, actually make a presentation of why they think that person is done. The person is then interviewed by as many of our third degrees as, uh, as we can gather together. And then it requires a majority vote of those thirds for that person to be granted a third which removes a lot of the power dynamics of it being up to a person or two people's whims. And my role or the role of any elder in our tradition is almost like ombuds people. We're technically members of all the covens and members of none of them. Okay. And uh, are, are, are the uh, resolvers of things that don't get resolved. Or if somebody wants to, uh, uh, complain about things that are happening that they're not happy about uh, within their covens, including their leadership, uh, they come to us. Mm -hmm. And we have on more than, on, on, on uh, at this point, two occasions, in one case removed and in other cases, uh, put uh, a, a, a set of coven leaders under probation so that uh, one of the other thirds sat in on all their meetings and rituals until we we're assured that things were running smoothly. Hmm. So, so that our, our model is more like a, the, the tradition as a whole uh, is, is as important as the individual units that are the covens. So it's more, I hate to put it this way, but it's easy to explain it this way. It's more like states and federal. Okay. 
and uh, there are policies and there are policies and decisions that are made at the annual retreat that's coming up next weekend. This year it'll be as a Zoom meeting, where uh, there is is voting on the various policies and schedules and blah blah blah. But we we use three forms of of decision making, and this will this will uh, make some people insane. If it's a uh, coven level spiritual matter. The, then it has to be a uh, the people that are bonded, which is to say they've made a long-term commitment to the coven, not people that just walked in yesterday. A lot of uh, groups get themselves in trouble when people that have just joined have equal uh, say as people that have been there for 10 years. But uh, so we have, you have to be around for a year and a day before you actually have a say. Mm. Okay. Nonetheless, well, yeah, you have to prove that you're actually committed to being there and you're not just passing through for, for, uh, for fun. But in any case, uh, the, that level of decision has to be made by consensus. Decisions made for things like uh, charter changes, the schedule, the, uh, the, what goes into our outline for what's required teachings for degrees or whatnot, that's voted upon. And then we have, so we have consensus voting, and then we also have temporary autocrats. So for example, when we run a large event like a weekend workshop or a conference, two or three people are uh, one, two or three people are basically made temporary dictators for solely that event. They have a voted upon budget and walking papers of this is what we want it to happen. But during the duration of getting it done, what they say is law because you don't have time for voting and process or consensus process in the middle of running an event. Right. So we use kind of like a, a three-part method. We also have, uh, and this is something I recommend, we have a board of trustees and we have uh, a, a leadership council. The leadership is made of uh, uh, the uh, third degrees and up and also acting uh, high priestesses and priests. The board of trustees is voted upon at the annual meeting and you don't even have to be initiated. You just have to be a member in good standing for a year and a day. And the trustees vote on anything that has to do with mundane world and money stuff and, and that kind of thing. And the uh, people that are init higher level initiates are the ones that vote on changes about educational structure and, and liturgy style. Okay. But it's, it's a bit, so yeah, but it's, it's, it's sounds complicated, but ultimately it's a, it's a, a social engineering experiment to try to minimize some of the problems that we've seen uh, crop up the most frequently over the years in a variety of different styles and sizes of organizations. And okay, so how long has your organization existed? Well, it depends on what you mean. Um, okay. We've existed uh, since uh, 1984. And we still have uh, now the feds didn't recognize recognize us uh, until, golly, I'm trying to remember if it's 92 or 93, but, you know, I don't count that as real. From my perspective, it's our date matters more than when the feds decided we were a, a nonprofit. So we've been around since 84. Uh, there are a scad of people that are still uh, here that have been here for the whole duration. Um, it's, it's very common for us to have uh, members that have been around 10, 20, 30 years. Okay. Hmm. It's a different model. I mean, um, the covens are clumped in groups of four 
And uh, do you know uh, what I mean by fostering the medieval term for uh, sending somebody to somebody else's court? Yeah. Okay. So let's say that uh, somebody uh, in Coven Y has a student that wants to learn about, oh, I don't know, uh, evocation or, or, or Norse runes. Okay. And there's nobody in that coven that actually is, can consider themselves truly studied in that. All right. The person gets sent to their neighboring coven uh, and uh, trains with that person. And when it's time for that person to say, hey, I completed this as part of my training, then the other coven, whoever their trainer was, writes a letter to their high priestess and says, hey, uh, I, I, I grant that this person has actually learned their stuff and uh, uh, count them. So most of our people uh, in any given coven have cross-trained in other covens in the tradition to complete and round out their education. Oh, that's really interesting. I like that. Well, well the idea was, <coughs> my allergies are acting up. The idea was that uh, one of the things that goes off in small groups, small covens or lodges, is that they suffer from all the problems that nuclear families suffer from when it's just mom and dad and the kids and there's no that's not the extended family to moderate things mm -hmm. so uh, when you when you kind of make it normal as part of your training process for you to be show up in other covens rituals or or classes you end up seeing how they do it and then you go back to your coven and go huh well, they do it slightly differently, and now you figure out what's normal and what's not, so you know if something's uh, hinky or not, if something's a problem or not. Or you also make friends with people throughout the tradition, not just your coven, so you have resources outside of your coven when the inevitable uh, growing pains occur. So it really is an attempt to uh, make things more transparent and more interconnected as a way of reducing some of the problems, not eliminating. Right. Okay. We also don't allow our covens to uh, be geographically too far. Uh, if uh, the covens that are in a set of four or as a new coven comes into being, it can't be more than a three hour drive from the nearest coven that it will work with. Oh, so that's, that's why fair. that's why we're mm -hmm. that's why we're ju we're just in the mid Atlantic states and up into uh, into uh, northern Jersey is our furthest north. Uh, DC areas are furthest south because uh, if people can't actually see each other on a reg regular-ish basis, then we will cease to be a community and become more like uh, separate little clusters of things that have a banner that say, hey, we're all member of the following tradition, but really you're not uh, connected to each other on a personal level. Right. Oh, I like that idea, though. That makes sense. The other problem we'd seen often is that uh, a lot of the things that went national or allowed themselves to grow too quickly uh, found uh, that fast growth uh, creates its own sorts of horrible dilemmas. Yes. Some of it is a uh, lack of connection or communication. Yeah. We almost joined COG. Really? Almost did back in the early days, but uh, there, there, we weren't really close enough to a, a, a COG member that we were close enough to. And the one time we managed to get an invite and go, it was uh, was rather dramatic because we were there for 
when uh, Judy Harrow got uh, kicked out by the Gardnerians. Oh my goodness! And uh, and uh, and she had to gave gave the impassioned speech about how being protean is just a different way of being Gardnerian. And she said it very eloquently, but she basically said, "Y'all are wrong, and you can go do whatever you want, but we're going to keep doing what we're doing." But it was rather dramatic day to, uh, for us to be there for that one. Sure. And I could but, understand that being But there not, weren't that many. It, it, it was not a great introduction. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I was going to say. Doesn't sound like the best experience. And Yeah, we, we walk into extremely heated. <laughs> mm. Yeah, my, my first year I attended uh, Mary Meet, and it was the tail end of what had been a multi-year drama concerning um, a council based in Chicago. And I never really knew like the whole, like I know the whole story now, but at the time I, I only knew bits right. and pieces and um, it was a lot of passion in that particular meeting um, for each side, whatever that side was. And right. uh, it was kind of like, it was a little intimidating you know, because we were just a really small group that just, we wanted to join and I, it, didn't, sure. it didn't seem enticing at the time. I mean, we still joined, but it was like, wow, what did we get ourselves into? Well, we remained supportive, but just said, man, I think we're going to back out for right now. Okay. But that was then. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, my loves, I probably you. have to go walk a puppy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for sharing all of that. I am so grateful to have heard everything you shared um, and your perspective on the world around you and life as you've gone through it is just amazing and encouraging and inspiring. So thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider donating on our website at ravensatthecrossroads.com. You can also catch future episodes directly from the website or find us on iTunes Music, Google Play Music, or Spotify. Follow us on social media, Ravens at the Crossroads on Facebook and Instagram, and at Ravens Crossroad on Twitter.